All right, Frank, we got to do a commercial real quick. You ready? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, okay, okay. <clears throat> hey, Kelsey. We do a lot of work here at the Video Game History Foundation, traveling to meet old game developers, maintaining our library, and making lots of cool content. But how do we pay for all that? Well, Frank, we're a publicly funded charity. All of the work we do here is made possible through generous donations from video game fans all around the world. Hey, that sounds just like our listeners. From Giving Tuesday, November 30th through the end of the year, we'll be fundraising to help make the work we do possible. Our generous sponsors are even matching donations dollar for dollar, so your impact is doubled. So head on over to GameHistory.org slash donate and give what you can. Every dollar helps. Let's save some video game history together. Okay, cut the crap. Back to the show. Welcome to episode number 59 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest or two, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has something interesting in the world of video games to share. See, it changed it a little bit. You changed it. Wow. Yeah. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. We're trying something a little bit different today. This is going to be a news discussion show. On October 27th, the U.S. Copyright Office issued a ruling that affects how libraries are able to provide access to video games and other software. We have two guests joining us today. First is Cyber Law Clinic tech lawyer, Kendra Albert. Kendra, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, also joining us is Phil Salvador, a library and video game historian. Uh, listeners may remember him from way back in episode 11 uh, when we discussed Sim Refinery. Phil, welcome back to the Video Game History Hour. Glad to be back. Let's start with the basics here. Um, What is the DMCA and why might one seek an exemption to it? Oh, man. Um, (laughs) So the DMCA, so it stands for Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, It's sort of funny to think of the digital millennium as something that like was very exciting (laughs) and happening. But in 1998, when the DMCA was passed, like that sounded not like something incredibly retro, but something in the future. Um, And I think it's helpful to think of the DMCA as sort of a compromise between uh, content creation industries and sort of the the existence of the internet. So it has a bunch of different provisions. Um, uh, We're going to talk primarily about one called Section 1201 today. And what Section 1201 was meant to do was deal with the fact that much, a lot of the content that previously had been produced in sort of non-digital formats and formats that might uh, lose, like lose fidelity over time was now getting produced in ways that could be easily replicated. And I see Phil like looking at me as I say this, because I'm aware that, you know, just because it's digital doesn't mean like, oh, you can copy it infinite times and nothing ever goes wrong. So, you know, I, that's the, that's the theory I'm aware in practice, it's very different, but So the DMCA, what that does is basically say, okay, we have this thing called copyright infringement which is for a copyrighted work, an original work of authorship fixed in a tangible medium, like a video game, um, you know, there are some exclusive rights that we give to the person who creates that. So they, you know, have the exclusive right to display it, to decide when they, who can sell it, that kind of thing, um, subject to some exemptions. And 1201 basically says, well, that's not enough, right? We need to create a separate legal hook, a separate cause of action, for people who, and this is the language in the statute, and I'll talk about what it means, circumvent a technological measure 
uh, to access the copyrighted work. So in normal or slightly more normal human parlance, what that means is sort of getting around digital rights management. Um, so if you ever, and not that I ever did this, but if you ever use software like Handbrake to rip a DVD or something like that, um, you know, and you were circumventing the digital rights management that was on the platform in order to do something that the copyright owner had not necessarily suggest wanted you to do with that software, um, that could be a, a, um, a problem under Section 1201. What about when I cracked the pro version of Real Player in 1998? That... <laughs> yeah, no. So it's actually really funny. The statute creates this incredibly broad definition of what it means to circumvent a technological measure. Um, it's, you know, it literally says to descramble a scrambled work, to decrypt an encrypted work, or otherwise avoid, bypass, remove, deactivate, impair a technological measure. So it's like all wow. kinds of stuff, right? It, it covers like vehicles too, right? To an extent, like repairing things? Yeah. So this has become the like, you know, in 1998, what this looked like was okay, we're going to keep people from, I don't know, I, this is, I'm learning, I'm, rem- like kind of learning as I talk how embarrassingly little I know about the state of media technology in 1998. So, you know, like maybe not be able to copy a a Betamax uh, uh, video or something, right? Um, But because Section 1201 has this incredibly broad potential scope and because it covers all copyrighted works, and that means all basically all kinds of software are copyrighted works. It covers things, Section 1201 covers things like tinkering with your like your your car or, um, you know, fixing your tractor. That was a big 1201, that's been a, a 1201 exemption. Um, and more relevantly to our conversation, it includes some of the steps that people might take to preserve access to video game, um, video games or other software um, in order to, you know, make them to switch from one format to another or in order to make them more accessible in the future. Um, and so that's why, you know, we sort of care about 1201 in the context of video game preservation. Not to go into the history of the exemption or, or, or the DMCA as opposed to video games, but I mean, is is this Napster that's doing this? Is... <laughs> so it's not, I like, this is, you know, now you're asking me questions about 1990s history. This is like, it, it, you know, uh, but I mean, I think it, it it's of the same moment of it many content creation companies, you know, the the RAA, the MPAA, realizing that, you know, what had sort of kept them, uh, what the tools that they had used to protect access to media before were not working or wouldn't work in a digital world. And so this was one of the steps, the DMCA was one of the sort of compromise steps that they took in order to kind of regulate access to um, tools that would allow you to make as many copies of their works as you wanted. Um, What's also notable about Section 1201, and this is, if you thought we were in the weeds before, like, oh man, uh, here here we go, um, is Section 1201 can apply even if what you're doing doesn't violate copyright law. So generally speaking, uh, preservation of digital works like video games or other forms of software is considered a fair use. So there's a lot of, there's an exception to copyright uh, called fair use, um, which basically says like, there's a class of things that you don't need to get the copyright owner's permission for. So if you've ever like quoted some lyrics because you're critiquing a song or, you know, quoted a section of a book because you're critiquing the author's writing, that's classic fair use. But, you know, people have argued and we, I've argued that fair use also applies to sort of broader um, preservation of works, making a copy in order to preserve them. 
So that means that, you know, preserving video games or other forms of software is not a violation of copyright, generally speaking, you know, caveat, caveat, caveat. However, it might still be a problem under Section 1201, because just because something doesn't violate copyright doesn't mean that circumventing DRM in order to do it doesn't cause a problem under the DMCA. And that's why. Yeah. So that means even if you're making, let's say, um, let's take something like the Wii, where you can't just like rip a Wii disc and it works in a Wii if you have to like, you know, use a, a development tool or a cracked Wii or something like that. To just make a copy of your own personal copy, no intentions to distribute it, that's still a violation. It can be, yes. Um, you know, uh, the that's one of the reasons why 1201 is so controversial, is because it creates real limits on what folks can do with the media and the devices they own. Um, you know, there there are bodies of law where basically it's the idea is like you're violent if you violate someone else's rights on someone else's computer, that's a problem. But twelve oh one says limits what you can do with your own devices and your own media. Realistically, the number of twelve oh one the the chances of being someone suing you for violating twelve oh one, either the media company or the Nintendo, if you're just, you know, cracking Wii discs so you can save a copy for yourself is quite low. Right. But there have been criminal 1201 prosecutions for people who are engaged in larger scale um, uh, uh, enterprises that uh, <laughs> shared uh, pirated media. I wasn't sure what word was going to come up. Was, yeah, I, was, I, was, I wasn't sure either. I needed yeah. to, I wasn't like, yeah. Um. Uh, it, it just reminds me of... Uh, was it the RIAA that uh, tried to go after people who had MP3s and they just ended up like, you know, suing grandma for like, yes, right? Britney yeah. Spears song? Yeah. Yeah. We, one thing that is good, I mean, <laughs> that we haven't seen the kind of in, a ton of the kind of individual litigation that we saw with the RIAA for file cherry cases in the context of 1201, which is which is good because. Uh, 1201 is a lot broader than copyright law, actually. Um, and so it could be, you know, it could be way, way worse. Um, but I, I think, you know, the realistically, the market effects of people making individual backup copies of their their, their discs are often quite small. Right. So, okay, so let's get a little bit further into the into the basics here, which is uh, what is a DMCA exemption? Who gets one of those? Yeah, so um, when Congress passed the DMCA in 1998, everyone kind of realized that like this was really broad, right? And so in its infinite wisdom, they set up this process where every three years, the Copyright Office um, grants a certain number of exemptions to the um, anti-circumvention provision, which is Section 1201. They say, okay, this thing previously would have been a 1201 violation, but you know we are giving you basically a special list of things that don't count as 1201 violations any- anymore. And since 1998, every three years, um, public interest attorneys have sort of gone before the Copyright Office and said, hey, there's a problem. Like this thing that is this pro-social, really awesome thing that people should be doing is, you know, not working under Section 1201 or Section 1201 is inhibiting um, or causing adverse effects as the language in the statute. Um, The people from you know, doing this thing. And this is this, uh, it's a rulemaking procedure, basically where the there's proponents, um, people who want an exemption and opponents, people who don't want those people to get an exemption. And there's, you know, hearings and testimony and pages upon pages of legal writing. Um, so, you know, the running joke is that like the section 1201 proceedings um, every three years are basically 
you know, legal clinics like the one I work at, which basically exists both to practice law, but to teach students how to practice law, often are like pour hundreds of student hours into these procedures. And, you know, you it's not, you often don't get the kind of really meaty big ex- exemptions of the type that cover a ton of activity. You're often getting smaller ones. So it can sort of feel like you're rolling the boulder up the hill a little bit um, in terms of the uh, Sisyphean nature of the task. But yeah, that's what the exemptions are. They say, hey, this thing that would have previously been a 1201 violation, like making copies of video games to preserve them, you know, we have found that actually this is a non-infringing activity that, you know, benefits the general reasons and why, uh, you know, there's a bunch of categories of specific statutory stuff that you look at. But we think this thing is good, so it's not a 1201 violation anymore. In terms of who can get them, uh, it, it seems fairly broad. I, I mean, it, in terms of the audience of who's getting these exemptions, it you know it tends it can be in libraries and archives a lot of the times, but it is also it can be broader. Um, for instance, this year one of the exemptions that was approved was allowing you to you know break copy protection DRM measures to uh, repair the disk drives on your video game consoles. Which uh, for folks who have tried to, I think it's a the Xbox 360, right? Has like the disk drive is tied to the specific console or something like that. That can be kind of frustrating. So now that is something people are able to do. Uh, but generally speaking, and the ones we're going to be talking about today, I think tend to be libraries, archives, museums requesting exemptions for preservation activity. So broadly speaking, then, um, when it comes to the preservation of video games, um, we'll just keep it to software here just to keep things simple. Um, before this exemption, just just set the stage. Like, where where are we? Um, what what can people do? And are there any things that uh, libraries and archives can do that people can't? Yeah. So um, before the exemption, there's this fantastic quote from Henry Lowood, who's a video game preservationist at Stanford. And I remember encountering this in 2014, which is when I started working on this issue, um, uh, where he says in this, like this, uh, this, uh, report that Stanford put out about preserving virtual worlds, which was about MMOs. Um, he says, Section 1201 takes the already difficult, I'm not, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I actually don't have the quote up. So, you know, all the, all the mistakes are mine, not Henry's. Um, but the report said, uh, Section 1201 takes the already difficult case of software preservation and makes it fundamentally impossible. And I like, that's always stuck with me because I think that, you know, for folks who work on video game preservation and software preservation more generally, you like folks, y'all know how hard it is, right? Like this is like already incredibly difficult work that is incredibly technical, incredibly time-consuming, very, very finicky, right? And the uh, one of the things that 1201 did even before the exemption was just create this like giant like uh, miasma of legal uncertainty around the whole uh, like work of video game preservation such that larger institutions um, with legal staff who looked at this and were like, we don't want to be anywhere near that, right? Um, we're even more unlikely to take on video game preservation projects that involve things like format shifting or removing or breaking copy protection, um, or God forbid, giving people access to video games in order to play them, um, In or- which, you know, can be, I hear it's like important when you're studying video games to actually be able to, you know, play them, but what do I know about these things? So... Yeah, so I think that, you know, prior to the exemptions in the ones we got in 2015, I'm happy to talk about how those have changed over time. Um, 
you know, there was a there was a consensus in the field of video game preservation that this was a problem, right? But not necessarily, I think many institutions either didn't necessarily want to uh, engage with this because they didn't necessarily want to draw attention to the practices that they had. They may have been mm-hmm. engaging in some behavior that might look like a 1201 violation and might not want to say like, hey, copyright office and, you know, entertainment software association, come pay attention to the thing that we're doing, right? You might just sort of um, be engaged in work behind the scenes that might implicate 1201, but you don't want to talk about it. Or frankly, they weren't doing video game preservation of the type that would implicate 1201 at all. You know, if you're scanning old magazines, that's not a 1201 problem. Right. So, you know, there are certain types of work associated with video game history, video game preservation, software preservation more generally that don't implicate 1201. And so I think that, you know, prior to 2015, uh, that we did, I think people were doing this work and just ignoring the legal risk, which, you know, that's not totally unreasonable in some cases. The other thing about, uh, Frank, you asked about library archives and museums. So, uh, you know, there's no special dispensation in the fair use in fair use for libraries, archives, and museums. There's no magic like bullet, right? Like where you're a library archive in a museum, you get automatic magic fair reuse rights. There's some stuff about statutory damages, but I'm not going to go there because that's actually way too annoying. <laughs> um, but, you know, generally speaking, lar- libraries, archives, and museums have this kind of, I don't know, magical aura, right? Of like, ah, yes, we really know that these are the folks who are doing preservation work. They're in it for, you know, the future of, uh, being able to access these works. And so they're often the ones who are able to do more cutting edge preservation work because, you know, they're, they have these, the institutional structures and support to let them do it. Um, but Phil, I'd be very curious as to your thoughts on this, because this is even more well, your area of expertise than it is mine. Well, that's what I was going to say is that um, there are some very specific privileges that libraries, archives, museums get that individual people don't, but they're very kind of specifically carved. And I don't know that they're especially useful for video games and software right now. Uh, the big one I'm thinking of is uh, Section 108 in copyright law, which allows, there's a bunch of specific exemptions for libraries and whatnot, but the one that... Um, I feel comes up a lot is section 108C, which is if you have something that is, it's deteriorating or damaged or the format is obsolete is kind of the big one. Uh, Mm. The library is allowed to make a digital copy of that and uh, make it available on the premises. And it's a very limited exemption. Like you could, I think you can only make three copies. They have to be accessed on site. Um, So for instance, in my current work in my institution, uh, I do a lot of uh, VHS preservation. And we use Section 108C a lot to say, hey, the VHS is in, this is an obsolete format. We can make a digitized copy of this and make it available to our patrons. But because it's still not clear how something like streaming media factors into that, we have to burn DVD copies and they can come to the library and check out a DVD of the VHS. And we realize that the DVD is also slowly making its way down that path of obsolescence. So that's another problem we have to confront at some point later down the line. Um, I'm not entirely sure how these things apply to video games and software. Um, There's a fantastic group called the Software Preservation Network that is trying to unpack some of these questions. Um, They are pretty soon, I think, publishing a guide about how you can use Section 108 when it comes to games and software. I'll just say that the question of whether a game system is considered obsolete is very messy. Um, we could go on about like, oh, you can buy, you know, an analog pocket. Does that mean the Game Boy is no? No one can buy an analog pocket right now, but like theoretically, <laughs> does that unobsolete the Game Boy? There's all these very complicated questions. 
but even without sexual, like, even if everything is okay and you can do that, there's still these DRM questions on top of that. That even if you could make a backup copy of a video game, there still might be some other intangible copy protection, anti-circumvention measure that you have to deal with in addition to this. So uh, even I, th- I think folks have historically not really used 108 for software and games just because it's been a very unknown fact, like how it applies has been sort of unknown until recently. But even despite that, like that, there's just multiple layers of things you don't have to worry about when you're dealing with books, for instance. Yeah, no, thank you for Phil for bringing up 108 because I always I've I've tried to block it out of my mind because um, I've spent <laughs> way too much time thinking about it. Yeah, the obsolescence, uh, the idea of what constitutes obsolete over 108 in 108 is bonkers. Um, you know, it's just this idea that you know if you could buy a VHS player on the commercial market, then VHSs aren't obsolete, right? And it's like that's not like you know, great. The existence of one company that maybe makes VHS players doesn't mean that this entire format isn't rotting away, right? We um, had a really fun discussion about that, I think, in the uh, Foundation Discord about yeah. if, if there's one mm-hmm. company selling, like, a diamond-encrusted VHS player <laughs> and it costs $10,000, but you can order it any time, does that mean it's not well, obsolete? Well, I, I think they say it has to be available at a reasonable price, too. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> it has to be reasonably available on, in the commercial marketplace, is the statutory that, language, which, yeah, what does that mean? That, Who knows? That's okay, right. yeah, that, that's the right language, right? <laughs> this sounds like every law ever, right? Yes. Like, reasonably, <laughs> yes. It's like, okay, now we'll argue that one later. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frank um, spoilers for the rest of the conversation like uh, yeah, yeah. totally right <laughs> um okay so you know we, we we've discussed a lot of things i just want to make sure that that uh i'm understanding everything <laughs> so um so the dmca as we know it um at least prior to exemptions uh made it difficult for both individuals and institutions to back up their own software um there's probably some ways where it is okay where you're not you know breaking uh you know well for example right like like probably copying a cd in your cd drive is fine right but but um to like to use kelsey's example earlier like putting the homebrew channel on your wii you know probably uh violates it because you're violating the Wii. like like that's that's our basics here right Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so there were some exemptions uh, sought before this one. Are, are they worth discussing? Is when it comes yeah. To- okay. <laughs> All right. Go. All right. So <laughs> we first meet our heroes to the extent that I'm a hero of the story, right? Which I'm not. But uh, in 2014, which is when I started working on this. Um, so I was working at the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, as a summer intern. Um, and I got asked if there was like any 12 to one things that I thought were a big deal. And I, so I, you know, like many of us, I played more than my share of MMOs as a kid. Um, it was super into EverQuest 2. And I always have this sort of memory of like, you know, you can never kind of like go back. I don't even know if there are EverQuest 2 servers up. My guess is probably not, but like, you can't go back to that moment, right? Those games, like in the way that you played them at the time don't exist. And so I think like, my initial interest in this work was very much like sort of driven by like my own personal experiences with like meaning the meaningful history of video games for me. And so I kind of started, I read Henry's report um, 
preserving virtual worlds and started sort of learning more about video game preservation and how basically like 1201 just like made it way harder. Like it wasn't easy before, but it was way harder because of 1201. And so the EFF and I proposed two, uh, so proposed two different exemptions, basically the first cycle that we worked on this. And there are exemptions, software preservation and video game exemptions that come back before this. But I think the ones that we have now are basically based on what happened in 2015, 2018, and then the cycle. Um, and uh, those exemptions focused on video games that required access to servers to play. Um, so this is like sort of online games that weren't necessarily like MMOs, um, but like games that where like it would just reach out to a server to make sure the server was there um, in order for you to even play the single player version. Um, and so we, this, the, they're referred to as server based in the, um, in the exemption, all of the language doesn't make any sense. Just, you know, you just got to <laughs> go with it. Um, but so in 2015, we got two exemptions, one for library archives and museums and one for personal local gameplay. So if your, you know, copy of whatever the thing is, was on, you know, always online and they, the company has shut off the servers, I think it's defined as them not being up for six months. Um, you can, in fact, circumvent uh, DRM in order to play it locally on your own device, right? And that's something we got in 2015. We also got a little bit of a broader assumption for libraries, archives, and museums to do the same thing. Then in 2018, there were two separate uh, sets of proponents working on video games. One was my colleagues at the Berkeley, uh, Berkeley Law Clinic, who were sort of working on behalf of uh, made the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment um, to sort of try to broaden the server-based exemptions. And then the other was um, me on behalf of my clients, the Software Preservation Network, um, who were basically trying to get exemptions for all software, including video games. Um, and this is the subject of much debate uh, because we hadn't really necessarily talked about video games a ton, specifically in our first set of filings. And we got a reply from the opponents that was like, they didn't include video games. And I was like, I, and we were like, video games are software. I don't know what you want from us. Um, so anyway, <laughs> what ends up happening here is this actual like real divide in how software more generally that's not video games and video games are treated in this body of the law in part driven by advocacy from the Entertainment Software Association um, who has concerns that, you know, video game preservation uh, exemptions will be used to promote piracy. Um, well, uh, really quick, just let me stop you there. Uh, what is the ESA? Uh, I feel like maybe one of y'all is probably better to answer this question <laughs> than I am. You we know. did do an episode about it. All right. Well, then, uh, uh, you know, my understanding is they're sort of the the trade organization mm -hmm. for major video game publishers and developers. That's exactly um, the phrase I had in my head as you were. Yeah. Major video game publishers is sort of the uh, the clients there. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, you know. I think their, you know, my perception personally is that their interests, the interests of major video game manufacturers and developers often diverge quite significantly from folks who are producing more indie work. You know, I think there's plenty of indie game companies that would be honored to have their work be preserved in whatever format, right? Um, whereas I think more major video game developers are often worried about cannibalizing markets um, for their later works. And so when we think about the role the ESA have, plays in these particular proceedings, I think there is this concern that the um, access to preserve video games is going to undermine the market for cur current video game sales, um, which I always laugh at this. 
uh, as someone who plays a lot of video games, because like, I know how many games I've bought on Steam, despite the fact that I still have games on Steam that I have not played, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, those are not cannibalizing the market for new video games for me. But I think that's one of the one of the major concerns. And one of the reasons that you see a lot of back and forth forth over the video game exemptions. Um, so let me let me jump back to 2018, if that's okay. Right. After our, uh, <laughs> all right. So in 2018, I just want to want to introduce that player in the in the play. Yes. Here, no. So. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're sort of the the foil in our story here. They're the yeah. the people who are who are arguing um, basically the opposite of what us preservationists want. Yeah, and I mean, I will say they have argued quite strenuously that there's no problem for video game preservation, that the ESA is engaged in video game preservation mm. and there's no mm. issues. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Sure. Uh, <laughs> which I, like, personally for me does not pass the sniff test, but like, you know, uh, the Copyright Office didn't ask me about that section of their briefing. We'll, so, we'll make all the com- all the snarky comments so okay. that you don't have to. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, okay, so 2018, we did get a pretty uh, significant exemption for video games where the DRM is non-server-based. So there's these existing server-based DR- restrictions, those still, or exemptions, those still exist. In 2018, the software preservation successfully got an exemption that allows basically libraries, archives, and museums to uh, circumvent digital rights management in order to provide like on-site access to video games and other forms of software. Um, and that is meant to keep stuff in a playable form, which is a big deal, right? Because, you know, we have continually the software preservation network has continually emphasized throughout this that the goal is not just to like save a disk copy of this somewhere and like you know keep up updating the format every you know 10 years for all eternity but rather to have these games actually be playable by scholars by you know um by archivists by you know people who are interested in this work that was 2018 2021 so the 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 thing that happened in october we the software preservation network successfully got off-premises access to non-video game software so now if someone preserves a copy of a particular piece of non-video game software um they that library archive or museum can now provide access to one use one user access to that software somewhere other than the physical premises of that place obviously this was a big deal partially because of covid but also because like realistically, you know, the ability to travel to an on-site archive is just not equally distributed. Um, unfortunately, because of the Entertainment Software Association's opposition, we were not able to get to eliminate the off- on-premises requirement for video games. So, you know, there are these exemptions that do allow libraries, archives, and museums to circumvent DRM for preservation of video games. On the other hand, they come with rules about what you can do with those video games once you've circumvented it. And those rules actually may make it much harder for folks to effectively use these collections in ways that are that we haven't necessarily imagined yet, right? Um, and so that's kind of what we've been thinking about post um, post 2021 uh, is kind of how do we how do we think about that? But I mean, we are. Uh, yeah, we uh, we are like very. I think, you know, from where we started in 2015, uh, we've made a lot of progress in terms of making, you know, eliminating 1201 as one of the barriers. There are so many other barriers, right? I'm not under the illusion that we've solved video game preservation, um, but there is a lot more latitude than there used to be. I think uh, 
to to do this kind of work without sort of having 1201 be a primary primary concern okay so i do i want to get to the unpacking software versus video games thing because that (laughs) that is an enormous discussion and i mean you even said earlier in this episode like let's just call it software because all video games are software but um to step back a little bit i want to talk about uh the on-site access versus off-site access thing a little bit. So prior to this ruling, a library can only, you know, whatever they have in their collection, whatever software they have in their collection, can only offer it to people who physically go to the libraries. If you're the Strong Museum of Play, you have to fly to Rochester, New York, and have Andrew Borman set up a computer for you and, and let you play the items in their collection. And now they might be able to not make you fly to Rochester is so basically the... <laughs> yes. The only difference is uh, they you wouldn't have to fly to Rochester for non-video game software. Right. You would still have to fly to Rochester for video game software. Um, and we had testimony from folks who do who work in libraries who were literally talking about how they would like give out laptops that they put epoxy in all the ports so that like no one could possibly like, take out the, the software. Right. And, you know, the, like... You know, we do a lot of factual research when we put together these kinds of uh, these kinds of pleadings when we make these requests. And one of the things we actually found out, I think it was at Columbia, was that Columbia's university libraries are not in a building with a classroom. So because the exemption said physical premises of the library, archive, or museum, the fact that there was no classroom on site meant that they couldn't actually have classes use this software prior to the the 2021 exemption because wow. like they couldn't have people in the library like teaching a class which everyone just... line up against the wall with your laptops <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just very ridiculous right so um but yeah exactly right the idea of on-site access has to do with you know the way we're going to control access to these works is by making you go physically to a place so i want to get um you know, just the historian perspective here uh, from Phil and Frank, and maybe I'll talk about it a little bit here. What what does offsite access mean? Like, how how often? What does this do for you as a historian? Basically, like, what what does this allow you to do that you could not? I mean, obviously, travel is one thing, but like, let's just talk about this a little bit. Like, what does it mean to be able to have access to software not in a library? So I think a big thing, honestly, is I, I think one thing that is unique about games and software when you're you know looking at them as a historian is that you tend to need to spend a lot more time with them. Um, so like this is something you know if you're watching a film, unless it's like some you know ambitious experimental fifty hour film, like that's usually going to be two hours and you watch it. If it's a book, you can read it. But um, you know I was on last time I do my research on Sim City. That's a game that you need to spend a while with to understand how all the systems interact. You can't just sit down and play that for half an hour and say, I got SimCity, there we go. Or if it's like, you know, an ambitious 40-hour RPG, it's unreasonable to expect somebody to, you know, to travel to a museum and go there eight hours a day for several weeks at a time to get through this RPG to get to the ending of it. Like, that's, I think that's completely unreasonable. So something like this, I think it's transformative because it lets people access things on their own time. It makes sense for just the amount of time you have to spend with games versus other mediums, allowing people to access that on their own schedule is so much more reasonable than uh, asking them to sit down and play through like all of Baldur's Gate at a museum, for instance. Yeah, I mean, for me, 
I've visited, I've, I've done research at the Strong Museum um, three or four times now. I can't remember. Um, I've never played a game at the Strong Museum uh, because I can do that elsewhere, you know, and, and it, it's, 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 it's not the best use of, of anyone's time at an institution. The best use would be like handling physical objects, for example, like the paperwork that they have. And, and for me, um, well, and then I, I want to take that further, even Kelsey, just you and me and the foundation, right? We often say when we're giving talks that, uh, we tell people, you know, play the game somewhere else, but come here to like study it, to get, to get the, uh, the context around it and understand it further and, and get the behind the scenes and stuff. But this is not a place to come play the games. Um, because we just don't, we don't want to deal with it, frankly. Like well, we don't want and to. And also, we feel pretty confident that like that part's done fairly well, you know, legally or otherwise. That that part is done <laughs> fairly well, um, handled by other institutions, by collectors, by um, you know websites that we shouldn't name here. I mean, there's there's like the games themselves are. Well, we can name large... the Internet Archive. Come on. Oh sure. We can... <laughs> <laughs> um, the games themselves are largely playable. There's, I know, Phil, you're a PC guy, so you're going to say there's 9 million exceptions to that. Um, <laughs> but in terms of console video games, we feel pretty safe about that. And that's that's such a small part of what you're dealing with when you're a historian is just the playing of the game. So, yeah, to be able to not require that, you know, you spend your precious little library time experiencing the game part <laughs> um, and you can focus on the other cool things in the collection. I mean, I think that's pretty big. That's pretty big. But I mean, that's, that's like us, that's people like us, you know, yeah. like I, I don't think a common person off the street knows where to access, you know, a, a, an, an older game. Right. And, and, and I think that's, that's the shame of the law. It's like we, I can circumvent the law forever and, and, and get my, my play done that I need for research, but because I know how, and like, I've been doing it for over two decades at this point. I know, I know all the weird corners where things hide on the internet, but, but people shouldn't have to have that knowledge in order to experience video game history. Yeah. Uh, Frank, oh, oh, sorry, if I can interject. Uh, I want to go off something you were saying earlier, Frank, about um, how, you know, when you go to the Museum of Play, you don't necessarily look at the games. I think that's another really interesting part of the on-site restriction is that it sort of devalues some things in the collection. Um, I'm thinking specifically about prototypes, because those are things that uh, end up in a lot of places at the VGHF or at the Museum of Play. And I think those are the sort of things where the differences tend to be minor. And it's the sort of mm -hmm. thing where the effort required to go like all your, all the way out to Rochester, sit down and say, oh, this texture is different, and then go back, uh, makes the collection less valuable, I think, because it's like, oh, they have these things, but it's not really worth going to see them. I'm thinking specifically about, uh, there was the, the thing that Hidden Palace has been doing, the Project Deluge, where they're just releasing mm -hmm. a bunch of prototype versions of games. Uh, there was that amazing discovery by uh, Submall that the um, they had the early versions of Toe Jam and Earl 3 in which the final boss, the anti-funk, was depicted in Klansman uh, garb, which mm -hmm. was like this long rumored like prototype version of the game. 
uh, he had to see that he had to play through like four or five different versions of Toe Jam and Earl. And of Toe like, Jam and Earl Toe 3, Jam which no one wants to do. But and he was just a, a, a slog going through this game over and over to see the slight differences at the end of each version. If the Museum of Play had those things in their collection and you had to go physically to see it, it really makes those items seem comparatively worthless compared to like the physical things they have. Expanding that to a lot of people to access that on site makes those items valuable in a way that I think you don't get if you force that on-site restriction. Well, and and not only like forcing them to play it, but probably forcing them to play it on hardware, right? Like I don't I don't believe that you can go to the Museum of Play and uh emulate the Dreamcast. You know what I mean? So yeah. um and so you 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 can't for example uh emulate cheat your way to that final boss, right? Like That's you have an to Xbox play game. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought it was the Dreamcast version <laughs> that okay. Well, it was a Dreamcast game originally, but yeah, then it went to Xbox, which is why I was confused. Um, but I mean, yeah, you, you you can't. Okay, then in that case, you can't use your debug Xbox tools to <laughs> whatever. Um, but you know, yeah, and and I don't know. It it almost feels like uh, we're pivoting to to what I think is an interesting conversation, which we were talking about before this. You mentioned Hidden Palace. That's it's one of several. Um, you know what we might call. Uh, I, I, amateur is just the wrong word, but but non-institutional uh, preservation efforts, right? And and um, you know, I I think it's worth talking about in the in the world of video game preservation, the the roles that groups like that play versus uh, museums and libraries, and you know where where the real work is happening. I, I think tends to be over there. Yeah, it's actually it's. It's really interesting because I think when we did this in 2015, um, our papers really emphasized the role of like fan and informal preservation in video games and like the fact that the like collectors um, and fans and communities play like a huge role in video game preservation, especially around stuff that's much more complicated than like making a CD copy. You know, we worked um, in our 2015 uh uh, exemption like uh, comments. We actually had an uh, anonymous d- uh, testimony from a person who had put up a server for a game called uh, I think it's Technica Three, which is a um, rhythm game, um, because the company that had made the arcade machines had shut down their servers, um, and he had basically like reverse engineered the protocol and started running a fan server that you know these machines could connect to. And what he said in it, which always stuck with me, was like. I love this game, right? Like this is important to me and I want people to be able to play it. And I think it matters. Right. And I think that, you know, one thing that's really hard as an advocate is to both know that that's the, that's the roots of why I do this work is because like, I care about the games. Right. And I care about the people who care about the games, but also that, you know, in front of institutional actors, like the copyright office, you know, the strong museum of play, um, or, you know, the, um, Stanford or, you know, these, these larger institutions are going to have more weight in terms of sounding, sounding like, ah, this is legitimate preservation. And I think we saw this a little bit in 2018. I was not representing made, um, but the entertainment software association basically suggested the fact that people played games on site at made, uh, made them less of a legitimate preservation institution. Um, and that, you know, and this came up in 2018, uh, at the at the hearings where the 
you know, the Entertainment Software Association basically was like, well, we don't want people lining up around the block to play video games at some, you know, archive. And it, Henry Which Lowood, is totally what's going to happen. Yeah. People are just going to be knocking down the doors of their local libraries to go Henry use it Lowood as an arcade. Said basically, he was like, I would love if I had, you know, 20 people <laughs> who are excited about using the video game archival collection, but that doesn't happen, right? You know, and I think it is this, it is this really weird. So there's both like kind of an institutional versus sort of fan or like, you know, informal um, collection difference, right? In terms of who's doing the work, which is often fan communities, especially around particular games. But I also think it's sort of, you know, I've kind of, I think I've described it this way on Twitter, like the fear that someone somewhere might enjoy a video game, right? Like, you know, the, the idea that, you know, that preservation has to be totally incompatible with love for these works and you cannot like, the desire have to fun. engage. No. Yeah, you cannot have exactly. fun while studying history. If you start uh, having fun, that's when it becomes illegal. Yeah. And I think <laughs> to the point you all were talking about earlier, Bo Ruberg, who was one of our experts who testified, actually said, um, they're a video game studies uh, professor. And one of the things they said is like, you know, the sort of difference between their job and a Victorian historian's job um, who studies like books, right? Where like they have to, you know, go on site. They have to own all this equipment in order to play these older games, right? Like, you know, or they have to know where to get it, not legally, right? Like it basically um, makes it harder for people who want to study video games to do that work because there aren't the types of institutional support for it that there are for other types of media. And frankly, like I find it hard to believe that that's not on some level, you know, institutionally, maybe it's the copyright office, maybe it's the rest of the US government, maybe it's archival institutions not taking video games seriously as an art form. I think that's part of the story here. Um, but I, you know, it is really striking about the differences between what we see in the video game preservation space, at least in terms of the legal re realities versus like what you would see in other, um, other spaces where the idea that you would want to like, you know, really actually engage with the work privately, you know, if you're reading novels, that's not, <laughs> it's not, that's not surprising. Um, I was going to say it's not novel, but you know, <laughs> thank you for not doing um, that. To, to the point earlier about uh, institutional versus community-led project, there's a really great um, quote from uh, John Paul Dyson, who's the uh, you know, director of the International Center for the History of Electronic Games at the Museum of Play. Um, it was something, something to the effect of, you know, institutions are like aircraft carriers, and then a lot of these smaller projects are like smaller ships going out in front of it. That it's like, we need larger institutions that are willing to play with more conservative institutions like the Copyright Office that are willing to help move mm -hmm. the needle on some of these bigger institutional questions. At the same time, there are some things that can only be done in sort of riskier territory or by these smaller individual groups like Hidden Palace or even, you know, people making the illegal reconstructions of EverQuest 2 servers, things like that. Like there are a lot of these smaller projects that help a lot and contribute, but we do also, there is a need for these sort of larger, slower moving institutions to start, I mean, even using the the work of some of these smaller groups as examples to help, you know, pave a, a clearer, more legally solid way through these questions, I guess. Well, I think, you know, when, when it comes to, and this is kind of going back to something Kendra said earlier, like the, the idea that these institutions just have more sway, right? Because they are institutions. Um, you know, the internet archive, when it comes to video game preservation, what they're doing is taking fan work and essentially hosting it, right? Like it's, it's. I mean, I, I'm, I'm downplaying maybe a lot of the work that goes into doing that, but like from a very broad outside perspective, like that's, 
what's happening there, right? Like the the uh, the online arcade or whatever on the internet archive being able to play, you know, MAME games and DOS games and stuff like that. It is taking uh, the work of of uh, uh, emulation authors and as well as uh, software preservationists and just sort of rehosting it on a place that says the internet archive. And now all of a sudden it's, you know, institutional preservation and um, really to an extent, the video game history foundation is very similar. Like I, I had my, my roots are in that world, you know, like starting in the late nineties, I was a ROM dumper. That's where I come from. And uh, starting the video game history foundation was like, I need more power, you know, to do my work. I need a name. Uh, And, and, um, and and even going back to what Phil was saying, you know, from from JP, it's like I I feel that yeah, there needs to be these institutions that that play ball, um, where where we try to fit in is is somewhere you know maybe in between is what we often like to say, right? Like there's there's one. We're not extreme. quite an aircraft carrier, but we're right. also not a tiny boat. <laughs> but we take we take very we take very tiny risks that 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 others might not, and 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 you know it's. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this other than like there's there's a lot of people involved in this sort of thing and, and, and everyone has a place. And I think it's not just like that the Copyright Office sees institutions as more um, meaningful and powerful and important and, and legitimate. Um, I think that's a perception of just like essentially the entire population is that an institution is always doing good work, correct work, legitimate work. And you might not believe that the smaller ones aren't doing legitimate work, but it's harder to parse. And it's easier to just be like, well, these guys are definitely legit. And everyone else is like, yeah, maybe. I will say, yeah, I think that seems all seems right. And I had, I didn't know that JP Dyson quote. So I really like that. Thank That's you. a good one. Thanks, <laughs> um, you know, I will steal say that the... one too. We, we already mm-hmm. steal the baseball analogy. We'll steal the, the aircraft carrier one too. From JP. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I, the internet archive has been a perennial topic at the 1201 hearings. Um, uh, that is, I think it is fair to say that the copyright office does not think of the internet archive as a legitimate institutional actor. Um, uh, I think what's tricky there is, you know, uh, they also, you know, haven't been sued for their video game collections. Um, and that, you know, I know the lawyers at the Internet Archive and I'm not wishing them any uh, any harm on them. Um, but I do think it is this weird dynamic where, you know, uh, the Entertainment Software Association will get up and complain about the Internet Archive in the 1201 proceedings. But, you know, fundamentally, you know, if you think they're violating the law, like put up or shut up. Right. Um, uh, and I, I think as someone who doesn't represent the Internet Archive with regards to that particular matter, but uh, has you know, is working on behalf of other software preservation clients, it's tricky to, you know, we're always, you're always navigating that question of what, you know, what, what, like, what kinds of institutional uh, actors do you, like, what kinds of limitations are okay, right, um, on what, who can do this work in institutional actors? And I mean, there is a definition of eligible libraries, archives, or museums in the 1201 exemption, um, you know, it's uh, taken from uh, the Copyright Office's uh, 108 discussion document, to bring it back to Phil's discussion of 108 uh, a while ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we that pretty much is in response to the idea that 
you know, the copyright office is not going to grant these exemptions unless they feel like they know who they apply to. And so there you're, you have these questions about eligibility that you try to answer in a way that, you know, both provides support to the communities that are doing the work, but also, you know, fundamentally is parsable by these powerful, these, you know, the institutions like the copyright office as, okay, these are, this is like legitimate criteria. So is the reason that no one has gone, like the ESA hasn't actually gone after the Internet Archive is because if they were to lose, then you've cracked the entire egg open and now everything's <laughs> like, it, am I am I interpreting <laughs> so, that correctly? And that it's kind of just the stalemate of like, well, we're mad about it, but if we sue them and, you know, a court decides that everything is fair use, then all of a sudden piracy is just okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple different reasons. So I will say that, you know, my bluster about the Internet Archive aside, they are being sued over their controlled digital lending program for books, Yeah, um, which was something they implemented during the pandemic. They were following the best practices that are considered appropriate for controlled digital lending, which is like you have one physical copy of the book, you loan out one digital copy, which is very similar to what is in the 1201 exemption for software preservation. Um, uh, but I think the other thing about the Internet Archive is, you know, historically, at least my understanding is they're very responsive to takedowns. If they get a takedown, they take stuff down, right? And um, I think that, you know, takes some of the pressure off litigation. You know, I think the other reason is, you know, I don't know this. This would be my sort of guess. Um, I have not spoken to their counsel about this. But uh, the types of games that they're hosting. One of the things that we found out when we started, um, when I did this work in 2018, was, you know, one answer from uh, video game companies is often, well, why do you need to do this without permission? Why can't you just get permission from the rights holders? Um, and yeah, I can, I can why, see why everybody laughing. Just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, to, to preserve these works. And, you know, I imagine the reason maybe many of your listeners probably know why everyone's laughing, but like, it's basically not feasible really in most cases and you know for many of the games the internet archive might host it may be that nobody actually totally understands who owns the rights and so it may be quite difficult to even if you even if the entertainment software association wanted to take the position that you know what they were doing is not legal it might be quite difficult to actually bring litigation because you know who who owns the rights to these particular works there may not be a clear paper trail because there often isn't right one of my favorite examples of that is this old computer game called Enchanted Scepters. It was this old Macintosh game that, through a series of acquisitions, is now owned by Adobe. And I think someone once tried to contact them or tried to, like, figure out if anyone there was aware they owned the rights. And it's like, no. Like, so something like that or, like, uh, No One Lives Forever. Wait, no, is it? Yeah, No One Lives. Is that the, the one, like, the spy era spoof yeah, type game. The one that, that, that yeah, yeah the, the, the rights yeah. are divided between like four or five companies and uh, nobody, they can't release it because nobody can make a legal stake to it. Like it's, it, paperwork is buried somewhere. Like there's so many cases like that. And I will say I represent um, hobbyist video game preservation folks sometimes in my non-SPN capacity. And um, negotiating with companies on this stuff is not fun. Right. Like even if you know who owns the rights. Right. I think that the idea often is that, you know, they're doing you a favor um, in terms of even thinking about like letting you anywhere near their rights versus oftentimes like literally, you know, working with clients who spent, you know, thousands of dollars of their own money, uh, you know, 
hundreds of hours of their own time to be like, I want to like preserve this thing. Right. And so it's, you know, it can be really off-putting when you talk to a video game company and they're like, well, like we want you to sign an indemnity clause. And it's like, I don't, you know, like uh, why, why are you going to make me take on liability for doing you a favor? Right. Like, you know, and there are these very weird dynamics around who, who thinks that, you know, they're doing the, the, who thinks they're doing who, you know, a nice, uh, a favor or a nice thing. So I want to get back to, um, the decision, you know, the decision, the whole argument that we're talking about here today, mm-hmm. right? So um, we've mentioned a little bit that, you know, it's kind of a software is okay for offsite access and video games are not. And this was really all, um, this is all like ESA lobbying is pretty fair to say, right? So the, the Entertainment what, Software what is, Association yeah, was the primary people in opposition to the request. Yeah. So uh, what, what exactly did they argue that the uh, U.S. Copyright Office decided, yeah, like, we agree with that. Okay, we'll, we'll not include video games into this exemption. Um, so they argued a variety of different things. Um, but I think one big thing that they, argue, they argued was there wasn't, you know, the most, to, to be most charitable, I think their strongest argument was that there wasn't a specific enough record about things people wanted to do with these exemptions. This is a perennial problem in the 1201 space where like the answer is often people don't know what they want to do with the exemptions because they can't do it until like they get the exemption and they're like, oh, actually we could do this thing, right? You know, it's very different as a difficult as an institution to plan around, you know, a, a legal rule that ruling that you, or a rulemaking that you don't know if you're going to get or not, right? Um, I think the other, uh, the other thing that they did say, which I, you know, I really wish I was making this up is that people might use the video games for entertainment purposes, um, if they were made available offsite, which is, uh, does not favor fair use. And so is not non-infringing, which is a requirement under the statute. Um, this is the idea that someone somewhere might be enjoying themselves. Um, <laughs> I remember the one that was particularly surprising that they suggested that it would be impossible for any university to provide access to video games off-site because their users are students and students like video games. So if you provide video games, they'll play for fun and not research, which is absurd, but like that's the direction they were going. Or like if a public library had a game, they would just make a virtual arcade as opposed to you know, having it behind like a gate where you have to agree to certain research terms. Like it was always the worst case scenario of there will just be an arcade people can use. Yeah, imagine yeah, the, saying the that virtual about arcade the was very much the like scary thing that might happen. I think the other thing that sort of comes up is that this idea that there might be a market harm towards video game, current video games for people having access to legacy video games. So these exemptions, um, I should have said this at the beginning, apologies that I didn't. These exemptions are all only apply to video games that are no longer available. They're not in commerce, right? So you, if something is still available from the manufacturer, the 1201 exemptions don't apply. So it's only for games where you can't buy it from the manufacturer. We actually very carefully engineered the language. So it's not some weird obsolete standard. We know exactly what, you know, what, what triggers it, right? If you can't buy it from, you know, the, like the publisher, the developer, right? Like, you know, on a regular market that counts. Does this mean it has to be, um, you can't buy it in its original format from the developer or um, like, let's say, you know, there's all those uh, Neo Geo games you can buy on Switch or whatever. Like, are those part of that? Because you can't buy them on a Neo Geo cartridge anymore or is that? Yeah, so this is actually an area of really robust debate. Um, Not because, uh, you know, our position is each video game is its own thing. 
right? So each release, um, each uh, release type, like that counts as its own video game. And so like, especially because, you know, as y'all know, and many of your listeners know, you know, video games change across releases, right? The original, the game that was originally released on one platform is going to be different on a different platform. And so for the purposes of scholarship or um, research, they're not substitutable, right? You can't actually like look at the, you know, the remastered version instead of the original. So we take the position that, you know, it's each, if you can no longer buy it on that particular platform as it was originally released, that one counts under the, the exemption. Um, which brings us to the the kind of debate over re-releases. So um, the Entertainment Software Association took the position, and I think I'm characterizing this fairly, uh, that there, because there was a substantial market for legacy video games, and those markets were commonly reintroduced, or these games were commonly reintroduced, right? The commonly is a very generous mm-hmm. definition. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that it was less you know there was going to be market harm could be it was more likely that there would be market harm to you know current video games selling based on access to older video games so Um, basically that if there's the potential to resell any game mm -hmm. that means that you can't preserve it essentially is the short version like the (laughs) yeah not that you can't preserve it but that like you know there could be market harm associated yeah yeah right which is really funny because, you know, I own a couple of retro game stores. And just to give a little bit of perspective on how untrue this is, um, you know, Earthbound was made available on the Virtual Console. It's a very expensive Super Nintendo game. Um, and it was made available for download on Virtual Console. Um, and it did absolutely nothing to the aftermarket price of the actual Super Nintendo cartridge. So people still buy the real thing even when and this is i mean this is still a a purchasing you know situation i guess but obviously it's been you know you've been able to emulate it and download it illegally for years um did not affect the price or the demand for the physical thing at all so i think that this is i mean that's a harder one to argue than uh just showing the numbers and saying no actually most games do not get re-releases but it's also wrong is my point (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think it gets to this idea that video game companies believe that, you know, copyright law and to some extent 1201, right, gives them the right to control the video game forever, right? Like, that that's kind of what I think the debate is fundamentally about here, which is the idea that we should be able to pull it off the market and, you know, re-release it, when the reality is copyright law has always had exceptions to allow for other uses that people make of works after they're released. And like, no, actually you don't get the right to control forever and always the all instances of the video game, because there are fair uses of it, right? You know, there are, there's scholarship and research and, you know, reasons people might want to engage with your work. I also think, you know, it is, it bothers me also because I think that it assumes you know, uh, right, the the number of games that, as we've been sort of alluding to, the number of games that get re-releases is minuscule, right? But it also assumes, and I think this is something that Bo Ruberg, who we talked to, made this point, that scholars are going to want to study the types of games that get re-releases. And I think, like, Phil, even your work and, like, many other folks who do study video games actually often focus on the types of games that no one is ever going to re-release, right? Mm-hmm. Um 
because they were commercial, they weren't commercially successful because they actually represent something really different or new or novel. Right. And so, you know, this idea that we should govern the video games that people are studying, um, that are not, you know, not, this is not about, you know, the market, the market for like future games, right. Based on the rules that like, you know, the, the, the idea that someone might play them and then not buy a new, a newer version, you know, just doesn't really seem to hold water to me in terms of like how the stuff actually works. The only things that people should ever study are commercial successes that are widely available. That's the only <laughs> video game history worth studying. <laughs> I think it's all I, going, going to Kendra's point, though. Like, I, I think accessing a game through a library or archive is probably the most inconvenient way to possibly play that game. Like, given the option between like getting a Nintendo Switch online subscription and playing Mario Three versus going to an archive and playing Mario Three or playing it in the the you know super controlled you have to sign away rights before you can play it browser version is so much more inconvenient than just buying it on a new console. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think, so, sorry, I, I, one more thought on this before. The other thing that's frustrating about this particular line of argument is that it actually makes all, you know, support from individuals look suspect. So, you know, folks often ask me, like, hey, you know, I care about video games, I care about video game preservation, like, can I participate in this proceeding? And, you know, my usual answer is honestly, like, no. Um because what the Copyright Office will do is if individuals express an interest in playing older games or engaging with older games, and those individuals don't have, you know, the lengthy scholarly CV that we often try to recruit for when we're talking about experts, um, you know, the Copyright Office sometimes, or the Entertainment Software Association sometimes cites that interest as a reason to not allow access to works, right? And this, um, you know, the public's desire to engage in entertainment uses, right? Um, uh, or the of publicly accessible online arcades, like, you know, and I think that's really tricky for me because I know, you know, we when we worked on this in 2015, we got a lot of public comment um, about how important this was to people, how important older games were, you know, why this stuff mattered. And like, I want people to be able to participate in these proceedings and talk about why this stuff matters to them. But I also know that, you know, if that will mean that, you know, the... Uh, that that's getting held up as evidence that, you know, people are not going to be engaging with these works in the right way. That's not, you know, in the best interests of folks of the preservation field. That's really, really tricky to navigate both as an attorney and also as someone who cares about this space. Right. And, and it's hard to argue the thing that we believe here at the foundation, which is that with better access, there would be way more video game historians. There would be a lot of people who would start diving into this because right now it's really difficult to be a video game historian. I mean, all of us have uh, gone to the Museum of Play at some point. I mean, it's like we've taken those treks, but like not everybody has the time and um, knowledge even of, you know, that, that kind of institutional knowledge that you just kind of get over time being in this space to know where to go or what to do. And um, I think with more access, we will have way more good, you know, scholarly research, but that's not something that you can really argue um, tangibly because it's really, it's, I guess it's really a theory more than an actual proven thing. It's, it's the big boats helping the small boats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, what's really important here though, is that uh, 
if someone wants to study video game history, they better not enjoy it also. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, we can, I do want to talk a little bit about the uh, software versus video game thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's so interesting <laughs> that they're saying software, okay, video games, not okay, which, yeah, to your point, implies this degree of, like, you can study things that aren't fun. <laughs> so what is the difference? I mean, you know, I think we all here believe there isn't really a difference between software and video games. Video games are like a subcategory of software. Um, but what what does this mean? What What is the difference it's, between software and video games? It's, it's, it's a game if a major game trade organization points at it and says game, then it's a game. It's <laughs> kind of what I'm getting from this ruling. <laughs> Oh yeah, and what it what did the because uh, there's a very fun quote in the proceedings <laughs> here about what the difference between a video game and software is. Uh, I don't know if anyone yeah. has that handy, but um, I could probably pull it up. But uh, okay, so the short answer is we don't know, right? Yeah. Uh, that is that is that is what I've got for y'all, um, which is to say that you know, the Copyright Office has not laid down a clear distinction between what constitutes a video game and what constitutes software. Uh, it agrees with, Kelsey, with you that, you know, software is a, as video games are a subcategory of software. Um, but despite the fact that what exemption applies and what you can do with something does depend on what where it falls on the video game soft, software distinction, the short answer is I don't know. Um, to be fair, uh, I... Uh, proponents of these exemptions have not advocated for a particular definition. Um, you know, we haven't said this is how you should define the difference, um, in part because I don't think there should be a difference. So I'm unlikely to want to spend a lot of time telling people how to define video games. But this did come up in 2018, which I, Kelsey, I think is the quote you're referring to, um, where one of the witnesses that we had testifying on behalf of the exemption, Lindsay Moulds, who's a uh, does archives uh, archives web art at Rhizome um, was talking about how actually it's probably pretty difficult to draw a line between video games and non-video game software, especially art. Um, and I think her example, if I recall correctly, was uh, this like cool, interesting like Counter Strike mod. Maybe it's Counter Strike or maybe it's Goldeneye. I don't remember. In any case, um, I know those are very different games. Um, but yeah, so. You know, she's trying to talk to about this and the copyright office is like, look, we don't really want, we're not going to solve this ontological question today, which is both fair. Like, I don't want to solve that ontological question, but I'm not the one arguing that there should be distinctions about it. <laughs> so I think that it's a really, I mean, I don't envy the copyright office because I don't think there are, you know, there is a clean line between video games and software. And I think Phil is probably right, you know, insofar as the, the realistic definition is, um, you know, if we define video games as only video games that get re-released at our video games, I would be perfectly comfortable with, uh, uh, with the, with the distinction. Um, but so it's not a yeah. video game until it's come out twice. Yeah, no, totally. That's, that's <laughs> right it's from the me. video game region of France. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I mean, it, I think it points to the fact, you know, that this is, it's a, it's a, it's a spectrum, right? Like there aren't, and that like, you know, we don't like the idea that there is a category called video games that all have the shared uh, market, shared uh, sort of like historical elements, shared sort of cultural understanding, like is not true. Um, and so the the problem becomes then like, 
you know, you're using, you know, Phil, uh, yeah, Phil's definition is brilliant because you're using the assumptions that are based on these large, you know, these large video game um, franchises to drive what ends up being the law on much smaller games that don't really seem to actually fall into the same category. Um, It's it's so interesting to me just because I can't even come up with a concept of this happening with any other media. Like if you're talking about exemptions for books or something and someone's like, well, yes, but not romance novels. Like those are just trash. (laughs) And so if you're reading one of those, it can't be scholarly. So that not, not that kind, but everything else is okay. (laughs) Yeah, one thing I think about often here is, um, you know, there's there's a Supreme Court case, Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Guild, right, where, you know, the Supreme Court says, and it's about, uh, uh, it's about California's law restricting uh, age restrictions on who could buy certain kinds of games. And the Supreme Court says, well, video games get First Amendment protection, just like everything else. And like, I always think about that, because I'm like, like, great Supreme Court, like, I wish we actually did that right not that video games don't have first amendment protection but i do think kelsey your point is like right on which is to say that part of what is going on here is a belief that this is maybe not real scholarship people are enjoying themselves too much you know these categories that video games are a commercial endeavor not a cultural one and so you know the commercial value of the re-release is more important than the culture cultural preservation elements and that's really i mean it's very it it grinds my gears. Um. <laughs> so, well, we got another three years, right? Till the next uh, possible hearing. Where, where do we go from here? What, what? Oh, and, and to interject real quick, because this is something that um, when Phil, I know when you were tweeting about this, that I think people were a little confused on. Um, this hasn't closed the door on video games. This exemption hasn't no. like said no video games ever. It's just that they haven't been given the exemption yet. Right. So what Frank is asking is like, we, we can still do this now. Now, yes. where do we go? Yeah, there's another tool in the toolbox now for dealing with software. Uh, that is a new thing we have gotten, but it's not like we again, this this comes up every three years. Uh, there is an opportunity to continue arguing in favor of expanding this exemption for video games. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so one thing that did happen last cycle so i guess like it would have been three or four years ago is the copyright office did make it far easier to renew existing exemptions so it used to be that you had to basically have the same fight over every exemption every time oh my god thank goodness um (laughs) that is no longer quite the case and so it's much easier to kind of start where you are currently especially if there's no evidence of market harm from the exemptions which there isn't um uh and sort of build on it. And so that's what the Software Preservation Network has been doing. We got the 2018 exemption, which frankly was, I think, a lot more broad than previously would have been gotten in the software space. And we're, you know, working on it. I So I think in three years, I think the off-premises thing is going to continue to be part of the conversation. I think, you know, um, part of it is just building a record. So we, you know, the, the sort of ask is... Um, you know, if you do encounter, if any anybody who's listening encounters problems with preservation related to 1201, related to video games or issues where it would be really nice to have offsite access, like, please, uh, you know, I will will put my, my Twitter account and my email in the show notes. Please contact me because it, those stories are incredibly helpful to us when we do this advocacy to be able to say, hey, we actually have like a specific thing that happened as opposed to here's this sort of general concern. Um, and so I think we're, you know, continuing to see what was successful here. Um, 
with the advocacy that we did and then thinking about what what we want to do next um you know and obviously that's a decision for the software preservation network folks um you know and i i get to i get the get the pleasure of advocating for them um but uh you know i think that we do we are always interested in hearing you know how this is affecting folks work because that allows us to effectively advocate for better change I have a, a question just in general that I, I just thought of, which is that, you know, the ESA is sort of the, like, I mean, they're representing the large video game companies here, right? Is it helpful if there are smaller video game companies that are like, no, actually, we don't care and don't believe this causes any market harm? I mean, is that, yes, would that like pun- puncture a hole in their argument a little bit? I think that would be helpful. I think, you know, part of it is like, this was not, you know, in some ways, every time we, le- we do this, we learn what the arguments actually are, right? And so if we, <laughs> if we go, if next in three, in the next cycle, in three years, we basically are having this argument again, I would love to bring in folks who work for video game companies that are not, you know, sort of large places that are re-releasing and talk about why it matters that people preserve their game and engage with them. And so, yes, I think that would, that would be totally, that would be totally great. Well, uh, Kendra and Phil, this was great. Thank you so much for joining us on the Video Game History Hour. Um, As Kendra said, we will have links for uh, uh, both of our guests, as well as uh, some light reading about the law. Uh, in in this, you can get the uh, the ten page version of the ruling or the three hundred page version, whichever one you want to read. Whatever kind. You can also read our briefing. Um, if which you know, if you're interested in like how do you actually argue in front of the copyright office about this stuff, you know, might be might be more fun than the end outcome. <laughs> no, read the three hundred page. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll have all that in the show notes. But uh, for those listening, just quickly, where can uh, people find you both on the internet? Starting with you, Kendra. Um, I'm at Kendra Sarah, K-E-N-D-R-A-S-E-R-R-A on Twitter. Um, I work at the Harvard Law School Cyber Law Clinic. Um, so you can find, a, I think our website is clinic.law.harvard.edu, whatever. Uh, cut that part <laughs> it's out. in the show notes. Whatever. It's in the show notes. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my employer's on Twitter at, at Cyber Law Clinic. And you should obviously check out the Software Preservation Network. Um, and all of those links are in the, in the show notes. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at, uh, at it's the Shadzi. Uh, I'm always writing on uh, obscuratory.com, which is my blog where I write about unusual old games and game preservation. Great. Thank you both again. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.